everyone, I am Dennis Mishmaley, back with another episode of the Bradenton Times podcast, and I am joined in the studio today by Glenn Compton, who is the head of Minnesota 88, a longtime citizen uh, group aligned uh, really in protecting our community against the perils of the phosphate mining industry, and we really couldn't have a more timely guest given everything we have going on with Piney Point, which uh, Glenn has written extensively on over the years, including columns that we featured in the Bradenton Times, as well as a piece that is in today's edition. Thanks for joining us, Glenn. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So let's talk a little bit first. Uh, why don't you tell us the history of Minnesota 88 for the people that are kind of uh, new to it, how it formed, and what you guys do as a group? Usually the first question I get is, what does the 88 stand for? Uh, Minnesota is understandable enough. Manatee in Sarasota County. Uh, the 88 goes back to 1968, where we formed as a group. And there were like three issues that were pertinent at the time. Um, growth management was out of control in the 60s, as it is now. Uh, we also were looking at Piney Point, which had just been approved and constructed back in 1966. And we also were looking at a oil refinery that was being proposed at Port Manatee. Uh, fortunately, the, we were successful of one out of three. Um, but uh, in 1968, we gave ourselves 20 years time to solve the problems of Manatee and Sarasota County when it came to environmental pollution. I joined the organization in 1980. And once we, get to, once we got to 1988, we looked around and realized there's a lot more to do. So now the 88 stands for 2088. So we got a long way to go still. I could only imagine. Now, this is a, the longest running story that I've ever covered. And as a result, I've had to learn a lot about phosphate mining and the perils of it. Can you talk a little bit about just the inherent challenges that are presented well, let's talk first. What actually are they doing for the people out there that hadn't heard of Piney Point until the most recent catastrophe? What Now, of course, this, this has been shuttered for years and years, but in a phosphate mining operation, what kind of things are happening? Uh, phosphate industry is usually considered in three different steps in the permitting process, and, and that's a problem because you have three different steps with three different impacts, and they're not reviewed as a cumulative impact in the state of Florida or anywhere. Uh, so first you have the mining impact, where it's a strip mine. That's basically you take all, everything off uh, to try to get to the phosphate ore, which is anywhere from 20 to 40 feet below the ground. Uh, you get the ore, you take it to a fertilizer plant, uh, which is then extracting and uh, formal, making fertilizer and phosphoric acid and a number of other different products. And the end product is a phosphogypsum waste that has to be disposed of, and it's been disposed of in large stacks uh, all the way back into the 1960s. Uh, so we've always described phosphate industry as a cradle-to-grave operation of pollution. The cradle is the mining that takes place at the beginning, and the grave is the phosphogypsum waste product that's at the end. Um, phosphogypsum has no use because it is radioactive. It contains a number of different chemical components that make it ha hazardous not only to the, uh, to the environment, but also to human health. And so it's been stacked up uh, for decades now. So even the term disposal is a little bit misleading, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, stacking up, and it's going to be there for generations to come. Um, it, it's estimated that 3,000 years of radioactivity is what's in these stacks. So these are truly wastelands that will never be put to use. 
Uh, so right now, the best thing to do is, well, first of all, never produce it. That would be the great thing. Uh, and the industry's had 70 years to try to figure out how to do that, and they haven't gotten anywhere closer today than they were 70 years ago. Um, so now I think it's time to hold their feet to the fire. Um, th there, there is a solution to the problem. It's an industry solution, uh, but uh, no one's really required that they come up with an answer to their waste product, and maybe it's time that we do that. What do you mean in terms of there is a solution? Um, I think if you were to deny a, a mining permit, based on the, the uh, generation of phosphogypsum waste, where you tied the beginning of the process Got to it. the end, the industry would all of a sudden become very technologically aware of the problem and probably come up with a solution. So do, are we aware of at any point a better way to deal with phosphogypsum than stacking it up? Is, there, is it a matter of being cost effective or has there just not been developed another way to deal with it? There's not been another way to develop with it in the United States. Um, in other parts of the world, it is uh, used in such things as agriculture, and it's also used in, in concrete. Um, so they, they've kind of allowed their waste to be spread around without having any oversight and not knowing what the actual hazards are. Um, one of the things that happened in the last days of the Trump administration was that the uh, Florida Phosphate Institute um, got approval to use the phosphogypsum in concrete in roads, which has never been allowed before. Um, and a number of groups, including Minnesota 88, are now uh, litigating that to try to overturn the really bad decision that took place uh, in, at the end of the Trump administration. Now, uh, why would you imagine this was done? Is this a, just another way in which they can cheaply dispose of a toxic material that's a byproduct of the industry? Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and I imagine they're selling it for the road parts? Or well, nobody knows exactly how the process is going to work yet. Okay. No, there hasn't been that first proposal, but when that does take place, um, there's, there's going to be quite a bit of opposition to it. Um, so, you know, I, I've described it as, okay, now we're stacking it up in stacks called JIP stacks or JIP piles. Um, what the industry wants to do now is put it into concrete, let it go into roads, and put it in front of your driveway. Uh, that, that's their solution to the problem. And the only reason that's being done is for cost um, because there, there has to be other solutions that the industry should be coming up with. Um, but to put it into roads and scatter it around the state of Florida uh, really is, is uh, not a very effective way to get rid of a hazardous waste product. But that's what uh, has been approved recently. So when we look at the industry itself, we've got... a just the way business is done, we have a toxic byproduct that they cannot avoid creating, that we found no other use and that they have not developed a way other than these phosphogypsum stacks. And correct me if I'm wrong, there's 22 of these currently in the state of Florida? I believe it's 24. Okay. So some of them are active at, at actual mining sites. It's important, again, to remember, we haven't been doing my, mining in decades at Piney Point. But that shows, again, that... Even when these mining sites are done, it's a long, long process of dealing with the after effects, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, again, this is not a problem going away anytime soon. Um, in case with Piney Point, uh, everybody thinks that we dodged this bullet. Well, we didn't. Uh, we put a whole lot of nutrients into Tampa Bay, and we don't know the full effect yet, but it's not looking real good for the summer, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, the industry has to have their feet 
uh, held to the fire. Uh, they need to come up with the, their solution for how to get rid of this waste, and the taxpayer should not have to pick up the cleanup bill, which is actually happening right now at Piney Point. Um, the talk is that uh, eventually uh, $200 million will go towards the, cl the closure of Piney Point. That's taxpayers' money, and we really don't know if that's even enough at this point because uh, this uh, a stack like this has never been closed before. So, you know, it's an estimate that it's $200 million. Uh, the legislative session is still going on as we speak right now. Um, so far, only $3 million has been allocated. Uh, we're expecting to get $100 million at the end of this legislative session and then look up for another $100 million next year. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, we're in uncharted territory when it comes to closing a phosphogypsum stack and how much it's actually going to cost. Let's talk for a second about what, because the term phosphogypsum stack, the first time I actually saw one, I was very, very surprised because it sounds like something very different than what it is. And I think... I think I heard you call it before that a more accurate term would be a toxic slime pond. Was that the terminology you used? Well, toxic slime pond is usually referring to clay settling areas, okay. which is a fancy word that they like to give. But we've that that's a, that's something that happens in the processing of the okay. ore. Um, this, so that's this, a, an active site. That's at an okay. active. So let, let's site. explain what what a stack is because it doesn't really look like a stack when you see it. It looks like a, like a big giant elevated lake, right? Yeah, if you take a look at it from the air, you get a much better view as to what they are. Um, there's large ponds on the top of these stacks, and the, the purpose of the ponds is to capture rainwater so the rainwater doesn't percolate through and pick up toxins and pollute the groundwater underneath. Um, when Piney Point was constructed, there were not even requirements for liners under these stacks. Uh, one of the things Minnesota 88 was very successful at doing was at least requiring liners and expansion of existing stacks. So originally the rainwater would hit them and would just run through the stacks and eventually seep into the, uh, probably, I imagine, the, the aquifer. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and that was done for, for decades. Wow. Um, the new expansions that are taking place, like there's one at New Wales uh, in Polk County, um, that, that's up for uh, public comment uh, until I think it's May 25th. Um, and I'll have something posted on the Minnesota 88 website for that. Uh, but uh, that at least will require a liner. Um, the, the, the strategy right now is not to get new phosphogypsum stacks in the state of Florida, but to expand upon existing ones. Um, so the communities that have allowed for that to take place, uh, historically, um, they're going to see much larger and bigger and expanded phosphogypsum stacks in their neighborhood, unfortunately. That, that does not sound like it bodes well for a bright future. And I guess we should should explain to people that Florida is, I mean, I've heard it described before as like the Saudi Arabia of phosphate. Like we have an enormous amount, particularly in the in the center of the state, correct? Uh, yes, we have this area called Bone Valley, Bone Valley. and uh, Manatee County is part of that. Um, and the reason we have phosphate mining in Florida is because that's where the phosphate is. Um, phosphate is rare. Um, it's much rarer uh, than, than oil deposits. There's just not that much of it. And our concern is not only on a local level and a state level, but it's, this is a national security issue that once we run out of phosphate, then we have to get it from someplace else. And, and I guess we should point out that a lot of the phosphate rock that gets mined out of Florida is, does not stay not only in Florida, but even the United States, correct? Correct. It, there's, I believe it's like 60% of it is exported overseas. Um, there, there's a whole global market for this stuff, and it's you know it's like it's like the electric company you know it goes to wherever the most profit is right. at that time. Um, 
but you know we will have at some point have to deal with other countries to get phosphate um, and and so we've asked for years to have this reviewed as a national security issue from a national level and uh, unfortunately that's fell on deaf ears and once we get to a point where we start to run out of phosphate then we really as a country are going to have to deal with some characters that we normally don't want to deal with yeah because that yes because that one of the other things that i noticed was the a lot of the other places where phosphate does exist are some of the most geopolitically unstable parts of the world. Most definitely. Um, you know, Morocco is supposed to be the one that has the second largest phosphate deposits. Um, and uh, you, you kind of summed it up. Right. Geopolitically, it's not the most stable place on earth. Uh, it'd be difficult to deal with that in any, any rational manner. Um, I, I would encourage people to not waste fertilizer. Um, Okay, you can make the point that it's needed to grow crops. Sure, there, there's definitely a lot to that. But to put it on a landscape and to have pretty grass, uh, that, that's a total waste of a very valuable resource that is very limited and it is non-renewable. Yeah, that, that's always seemed really nonsensical to me. And it seems like one of the things we don't do well at all in Florida is we, we kind of have this thing where and I guess it's just from, you know, it being a place where largely everyone's from someplace else. And I guess the visual landscapes that, that came to dominate Florida were always important. And while there are so many beautiful, efficient, natural coverings and, and indig indigenous uh, plants that, that work so well in the chal otherwise challenged soil that we have here, we seem to have developed this process in which we take a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't grow well, and then we try to trick the soil by poisoning it into hosting, you know, the, these foreign, uh, uh, you know, coverings and, and trees and bushes and shrubbery. And then when you do that, you have to hammer it with a ton of water, which we also don't have great, you know, future outlooks for, which then creates runoff that then creates other problems. So it's always seemed to me like that's like, yes, you need the crops, but then you look and you say, how much of our problems are just for something as silly as, oh, well, we want the topography to somehow look different than it naturally does, so we're going to poison it and waste vital resources in order that that happen. It seems as though like if we can't get past that and regulate it and say, okay, hey, bad idea, guys, how are we going to get to the bigger problems you know, down the food chain on this? Uh, I, I can't, uh, can't disagree with anything there. Um, uh, you know, the, the way that Florida has developed for decades is almost like strip mining. Uh, you watch these large developers come in and the first thing they do is they cut down everything. And then you come in with palm trees and you put, you, you have your, your retention ponds and you try to make them look pretty. Um, and then like you say, the landscaping that is put into these new developments is water intensive and it's also fertilizer intensive. And there's a lot of room for imp improvement yeah, there. It's not supposed to be there. No, <laughs> That's the exactly. problem. It's not. And then you have to do, in terms of the efficiency of resources, you have to do nonsensical allotments in terms of phosphorus-rich um, uh, you know, fertilizers and water. Let's talk a little bit about the water part because that's only a small part. Let's talk about how water-intensive phosphate mining is. Um, well... I've, I've focused more on the, the reclamation of wetlands when it comes to the water issues with phosphate mining. 
Um, the phosphate industry comes up with these really, I think, absurd numbers that they re, they uh, recycle ninety percent of their water. And I That's very misleading the way they say recycle, though, isn't it? Exactly. So you know, there's there's big questions as to how much water is actually being used. What what I do know for sure is that they have these uh, twenty to fifty year permits from the water management districts that they can pretty much utilize as much water as they want. Um, and, and it's 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 a, it's a subsidy that the state of Florida has given to the phosphate industry to allow for the the use of the, our ground and one that Florida cannot afford definitely not because <laughs> I mean that, that that's that's the thing you know even when we get to environmental issues I tell people all the time that as bad of a problem as the ones that get a lot of attention like sea level rise are the one that we're not looking at if you look at the long term even really near term let's look at thirty year water modeling predictions. We are in big trouble if we continue to grow our population by over a million people a year and we're not only sucking all the water out of the ground that that requires, but then we're allowing phosphate mining to, phosphate mining to expand their operations. Rather than moving away from it, we're running toward it. And, I mean, what's going to happen in, in 30 years? Let's, let's look at Hillsborough County for a second. This, this was a staggering uh uh, model that when I saw somebody lay it out the first time in Hillsborough County, which includes the the Tampa uh, city of Tampa, a, a large you know metropolitan area, it's almost exactly the same every year. All of the industrial and residential water that's used about equals all of the phosphate mining water that's used, and as a result, they've had to do a desal plant which that's long been touted as the, the big solution. But the reality is, unless we found some magical way to do desal that's not carbon intensive and using a lot of fossil fuels in order to extract it, and then you have to consider that unless you have a desal water source very, very close, then water is also extremely heavy to transport and try to get anywhere, which then increases the carbon footprint as well. So desal is not only probably not a viable solution for the vast majority of water needs we have, but it's also much more expensive. So in a place like Hillsborough, that's another hidden subsidy where the water consumers don't have just that blanket permit where they could draw as much as they want. And when the reserves go down too low and the desal kicks on, they're the ones whose rate goes up. So they're, they're directly subsidizing an enormously profitable industry. Uh, yeah. Just, just a, a point on desal. Um, it was toted as this is a, our solution here in the state of Florida until the first couple got built. I think it's only one actually that's actually online and that's on Tampa Bay. Uh, but if you want a desal plant in your community, you also have to have a power plant next door. Mm -hmm. And the city of Venice at one time was looking at a desal plant because they have kind of almost a, a, a setup where you could have a desal plant. He had a lot of land next to an intercoastal, next to the Gulf of Mexico. So you could draw the water from the intercoastal and desal it and then discharge it into the Gulf of Mexico, and you have this big, big bunch of land. And then they started to realize that, oh, we have to have a power plant too. And so the desal plant maybe did not have too much objections from the public because they didn't quite understand uh, what it is and what the impacts are. Sounds great, it. yeah. But uh, when you say power plant, then you start to understand that, okay, we're looking not just at water pollution, but we're looking at air pollution and also changes in land use that will never go back to the way they were previously. So that was shelved a number of years ago. Uh, so desal kind of is something that once people realize that the power consumption 
is necessary that is necessary to run a desal plant, you kind of look for other solutions to your water shortage issues. And we're talking about the nutrient rich water, and it might not be a good summer. I guess we should explain to people that th- this discharge and really all of the the any kind of discharge that's going to be associated with phosphate mining is going to be very nitrogen rich. So when you do that, you have the the P and K, the, the phosphorus and nitrogen balance in the in the Gulf. When you do that, you're making, so while you might not, you don't really necessarily create red tide algae blooms, but what you're doing is you're making, correct me if I'm wrong, a much more hospitable environment for a naturally occurring algal bloom to become much more persistent and larger in scope. Uh, adding fuel to the fire is probably the best way to describe it. Like an accelerant, it. basically. Yeah. And, and that's exactly what's happened at Piney Point. Uh, that's why I, I, I've said we didn't dodge a bullet. We put 200 million gallons of highly um, um, nutrient-rich water into Tampa Bay. and A part of the bay by the way, that also has really transitioned from a seagrass-dominated system to an algal-dominated system already, correct? Yeah, and, and, uh, when Port Manatee got their permit to dredge Berth 12, uh, we challenged it, um, and we were very concerned about the seagrass mitigation that was, was uh, approved and taking place. And uh, we, didn't, we didn't stop it by any means, but we did get it a better permit so that they had to do better seagrass mitigation projects as a result of the destruction of the seagrasses when they dredged birth 12. All of that is in jeopardy now. Uh, the discharge is close enough to the seagrass mitigation sites uh, that they had to plant as a result of the expansion of birth 12. So it's, it's I don't know, you call it ironic, but you know here you have a port manatee dredge that... Uh, had to do seagrass mitigation, but then they allowed for their dredge material to be stored in a phosphogypsum stack, which then leaked and now uh, might ruin the mitigation sites that uh, were, were planted. Um, and, and only time will tell how bad it's going to be. Uh, right now, the, the latest is that um, the plume of, of uh, nutrient-rich water is somewhere between Manatee River and Little Manatee River. Um, and I don't know if it's been flushed out. That was a couple days ago. But uh, that's the area of concern right now. Uh, that's where uh, you have a lot of mitigation of seagrasses in that area, and you have some of the most valuable habitat that you have in all of Tampa Bay. Um, so um, people that are out on the river, they're starting to, or on, out on Tampa Bay, they're starting to notice a difference in the coloration, and they're starting to see a little bit more of the, what are be, being described as uh, microalgae blooms. Um, and I think we're in for a rough summer is ultimately what's going to happen. Let's pivot back to Piney Point and some of the objections that your group has had. What, in your opinion, because I know that now there's a lot of finger pointing going on, and it seems like FDEP wants to kind of really hang it all just on HRK. So we've, we've really tried to educate people to understand, because it seems like there's been a lot of confusion where people thought HRK was in the phosphate business and is responsible for a lot of what's happened. And Hey, let them clean it up. But they were really brought in with the blessings of the state to try to reclaim a, a site and hopefully be able to make it into something profitable. What, what I know hindsight sometimes 2020, but you've been with it through the whole thing. What do you think was done wrong? Let's go back to like 2001 when, when operations were being closed down and then, you know, the FDEP had it for a while before HRK had it. In terms of their strategy for the site at that point, 
What do you think were some of the mistakes and some of the things that could have been done differently? Well, I think the biggest mistake was selling it to HRK Holdings to begin with. Um, they are a limited liability corporation, as I think almost any uh, phosphogypsum stack manager is. Uh, that, that doesn't give me any great comfort. It's just that's the way it is in the state of Florida. Uh, but there, here's this company that has absolutely no background whatsoever in phosphate mining or in phosphogypsum stack management. So why would you even allow for this company to come in and try to manage something they have no experience in? Uh, so that was a huge mistake. And why do you think FDAB was, seemed so intent on trying to get a private owner in at that point? Well, nobody wants to own a phosphogypsum stack that's defunct. There's no in economic incentive to do that. Uh, HRK Holdings thought there was. Uh, so they rolled the dice. Uh, they, they gambled with what they thought was going to be a profit. Um, they, they lost. The taxpayers are losing, and the environment is losing as a result of it. Um, but, you know, I think ultimately they saw the dredge material from Piney Point or from uh, Port Manatee going into Piney Point as a win financially for their company, uh, not understanding that the liner that was put there during the time that uh, the state owned it was inadequate to handle the, uh, the dredge material that came from the port. Uh, and we, we found out a, a, a hard lesson. Uh, you don't let liners sit out in the sun because they deteriorate over time. And you don't let limited liability corporations manage a phosphogypsum stack that don't have any, don't have any, any uh, background in doing so. Uh, so what do you think would have been, the, in your opinion, the better move uh, when the dredging of Birth 12 happened? Well, the, the amount of money that the taxpayers are putting towards Piney Point now is what should have happened in 2006. Uh, this site should have been closed. And it should have never, ever uh, been used um, as a dredged site, a dredged material holding site. Uh, that, that was a huge mistake. Uh, there were other alternatives that they could have put their dredged material elsewhere. They cr could have created islands. I mean, there was, there was no good economic or environmentally sound way to place this dredged material anywhere. But they chose the, the, the cheapest well, explain that for a second. Why? What was? Was there something unique about the dredging material? No, I mean dredging's been done for centuries. Okay, and uh, so, but you have to put that material somewhere. Um, it, in some places, you build islands, and then you plant vegetation, and you get something that that, that has some use to it. Uh, but that takes uh, a lot of money, and it takes a lot of time. So the idea was, well, let's put it into a fossil gypsum stack. It's sitting there; it's not doing anything. So let's give it a try. Um, and now we find that that's not a good idea when it comes to placing dredge materials. Um, so uh, selling it to HRK Holdings, that was a huge mistake. Um, and putting the dredged material into the stack, that was a huge mistake. Those were the two big ones. Um, and ultimately, uh, the mismanagement that took place, not only when FDEP owned it, the taxpayers owned it, but also when HRK Holdings owned it, uh, clearly, they didn't make the investments necessary to manage the site so that we wouldn't end up in the situation that we're in right now. What do you think some of those investments could have been that, that, that could have prevented maybe the, what we ended up with? Well, reverse osmosis uh, would have been a way to treat the water. Um, there, there's like four alternatives to try to get rid of the wastewater. One is a spray evaporation where you put it up. Which they the did try, correct? But they weren't able to do it fast enough to even... Right. My understanding was even the additional rainwater wasn't, uh, let yeah. alone putting a dent in the, the original amount. Well, yeah, there's three stacks there uh, that hold, hold water. And two of them, as far as I know, are still doing spray evaporation, the two that did not leak. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but yeah, the, the problem there is that you couldn't get rid of the water fast enough. I mean, this is Florida, uh, high humidity, evaporation doesn't necessarily work. So the, uh, the, the owners went to in front of the Manatee County Commission long before any of this happened, uh, not long before, but a few months before any of the current right. situation happened, asking for help. Uh, $6 million dollars. Uh, to start with, and the state hopefully matches uh, six million. We get twelve million bucks, and we try to do something with it. Um, so, spray evaporation was one way that they were trying to get rid of the water. Um, treat and discharge. Um, that that's an expensive option, and right now you have two companies that have been contracted by the state to do that on the stack that leaked. Um, those two companies had made pitches to the county commission prior to this leaking. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see how they do. And how, how do you feel about the treat and discharge method? I don't like the discharge, right. obviously, but, you know, there's there's no good scenario. Is there a way to effectively treat the water to get it? I mean, because it seems like you're you're dealing with some really, really temperamental balances in a very important waterway. Mm-hmm. And it would seem like it would be very difficult to have a perfectly ideal treated source going into it that isn't going to disrupt it in some way, even if it's one that can't be predicted. Well, this, this is the, the, the legacy of Piney's Point. We have learned there is no best case scenario to get rid of wastewater in a phosphogypsum stack. Um, the, the treat and release means it's released into Bishop's Harbor. Now, Bishop's Harbor is an outstanding Florida water. It's one of the prettiest places I've ever been in the mm-hmm. state of Florida. And it's already received more pollution from Piney Point in previous spills than it should have ever had in its entire existence. So, you know, treat and discharge usually meant it's going into Bishop's Harbor and it's going to receive more nutrients. Exactly. Uh, So, you know, that's an option. And they're very strategically important waterways, we got to remind people, because that's where a lot of the, the sort of sea life food chain kind of begins. It's like a nursery, so to speak, for what goes out into the bay, right? right. Yeah, Bishop's Harbor has been described for years as the nursery for Tampa Bay. Um, but also, you can go so back. the ripple effect of, of fouling that water mm-hmm. is, again, this is like one of those butterfly effect things where you screw up just at what seems like a manageable area. but the, And that's what I mean about that balance. The idea of what can happen if anything's a little wrong down the line it affects everything down to the commercial fishing industry, sportive fishing industry, you know, algae blooms, tourism industry. So even outside of the long-term environmental standpoint, this is an economic loser for the area as well. Oh, yeah. It's a big black eye in this area. The other um, alternative that was done um, previously was you put it on barges and you take it out into the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, like 100 miles offshore, and dump it. Um now, no one's talking about doing that now because there was such an outcry when that happened the first time. Uh, her, um, tropical storm, Gabrielle, or it was Hurricane Gabrielle. I can't recall what, which storm it was, but it was done. And uh, uh, there was a red tide outbreak that same year, and everybody was thinking, okay, this nutrient water that was untreated was being barged out into the Gulf, and that's contributing to red tide. So because of the public outcry, and that went all the way south of here and north of here, not just Manatee County, um, that that doesn't seem like it's a viable option that uh, they want to try to pursue again. Um, there is talk, and I, do, and I don't, I'm not even sure it's been done yet. But they're putting it, they're they're thinking of putting it on barges and taking it to Louisiana, because in Louisiana there is a uh, Uncle Sam, which is owned by Mosaic. It's a phosphogypsum stack. Uh, they have deep wells, and so they want to inject uh, the, the the wastewater into a deep well in Louisiana. 
And I'm always kind of, you know, interested to know what's Louisiana going to send us if we send them this water. Um, There's got to be something in the future that we're going to have to. And that would have to seem terribly inefficient to try to get that much water to Louisiana, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, barging it all the way across the Gulf of Mexico. Even the largest barges. I mean, that's still a, that's that's an operation. Yes. I, I don't know how much they could actually do, but it is being talked about as an option. All right, so now we're let's go to Deep Well because I know that Minnesota 88, like a lot of groups, has been ardently opposed to this solution. Can you talk a little bit about what Deep Well injection is and why uh, we should be concerned about it? Uh, it's going to be a really hard decision um, to oppose this or not oppose this because there are no good viable right. We're at that part now, and this is, I guess, maybe the lesson from this is this is what happens when you wait until the disaster strikes rather than you know, taking one of the available options earlier. Right. So, you know, the concern is, okay, if you stop the deep well, then what? Right. Then you have this catastrophic failure of the two other stacks, if that's a possibility. I don't know. Um, our, our concern is... Well, let's talk, explain, can, can you first, in a simple matter, what deep well injection is? Uh, yeah, you take a well, you, you put a, a hole in the ground with the pipe, and it goes down 3,500 feet, and you... You discharge the wastewater. Into and it's not like well. a lined well in any way. Um, it's cased. Cased, okay. Uh, but all wells leak over time. Right. Uh, and also, the only reason that you deep well inject water is because it has poor water quality that you could never get a permit to discharge it on the surface. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at discharging the worst water quality uh, that you have to get rid of. And that, that's true for every deep well. Uh, and that's what everybody has to remember is that when you have to deep well inject something, that means that you cannot inject it onto the surface because it's so polluted um, and it's done for cost savings reasons you know you don't have to treat it to the same standards that you would if you in, uh, if you were to in, um, you know, discharge it onto the surface um, so there's been I think it was a 2013 2014 Manatee County um, had moved forward with a deep well injection at Piney Point as one of the solutions to get rid of the wastewater the outcry from the public was so tremendous that they pulled back the uh, the application and it didn't move forward. But that application is still sitting there. It's ready to go. Um, by all indications, Manatee County is moving forward with it. Uh, they want to own the well uh, so that they have control as to what goes down the well. Um, yeah, because the initial idea was for HRK to own it, and then they also wanted to be able to for, with offset costs and make a profit, accept other uh, uh, sources of water that they, they would take off other people's hands, correct? Correct. And I don't, I, I'm, I'm assuming at this point, Manatee County, even though they own it, would do the same thing. Uh, there's a number well, of... They're it. claiming they wouldn't. So the, the first promise made, and of course, uh, acting county administrator Scott Hopes was only sworn in the morning that the, the, the breach happened. But the statement that was made was that if the county owns the well, they would treat all water before injecting it, and then in addition to that, would assure that nothing other than water from the Piney Point stacks would make it into that well. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Okay. <laughs> I guess that's the way. And so what you have, uh, the, the one thing about dealing with government is and, and elected officials is that they change over time. Right. Um, and so it was interesting with this, you know, the new commissioners, uh, they were at first very much opposed to deep well injection. Then once they learned about deep well and the other alternatives, they uh, all of a sudden unanimously started to support it. And now I'm, I'm seeing two of them uh, start to question whether or not deep well is 
the viable solution here because of the opposition that's starting to form uh, to this deep well uh, uh, proposal. Um, it, it's not so much the environmentalists that have been opposed to this. Um, well, I can't say that, that that's true. We've been very much opposed to it. But also the agricultural uh, community, especially the surrounding community with, uh, that, that are concerned about their wells being polluted. Um, so as much as I'd like to think that uh, we stopped it in 2013, 2014, I, I think it was more the agricultural interest in the area. Yes, who, who has so far said they think they could be okay with it this time. Right. So I don't think we're going to get the agricultural resistance, which, as you said, because I think of their political capital, they were a big part of that falling apart in 2013. Yeah, it, it remains to be seen what happens next. Um, but the Farm Bureau's... Um, in, in Florida are very powerful politically, um, and they're taking an interest in this. Um, and this is getting national interest because it's gotten nas- national coverage. So I, I think uh, Manatee County is going to be facing uh, not only local resistance on this, but a national resistance. Um, so uh, typically it takes about a year, year and a half to get a permit for a deep well. I think with the challenges that are most likely happen- going to happen, it's probably going to take longer than they anticipate. Um, and that's, that's, again, you know, we'll have to wait and see uh, what happens when the permit is issued, what the next steps will be. Uh, but this, this thing's not going to go without being challenged. Do you see a preferred option? I know that you said it's hard to oppose one and, and you're not left with any good option. If you could snap your fingers and see a certain course taken, is there one that you would you'd prefer? Uh, no. <laughs> wow. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. There is no good alternative. That, that's the sense I keep getting from the people that are coming from the most well-intentioned place. Right. And that, again, though, I think that speaks to the idea, why are we increasing phosphate production? Especially, so I, I guess my my real hope for this catastrophe is that it's not wasted in the sense that it doesn't serve as a wake-up call in order for us to get much more serious about the idea that, hey, we can't just keep, you know, hoping that this thing goes away or, or never, hey, maybe it'll be the next guy's decision or next guy's decision or next generations. We can't, you know, that's a, a fool's, you know, pathway. But when you elevate the conversation and talk about the parts that we did earlier with, we're not even being strategic about it. Like we don't have, like we have a strategic petroleum reserve that we say, hey, you know, this is incredibly important to the national security of the country that we always have enough petroleum and we can't always be able to rely on getting it from other places. So we create this enormous reserve of it. And then we have places where you're not allowed to drill for it and so forth. It seems like we're doing none of that with phosphate. Is there any, like at the federal level forward thinking to that problem with national security described No, that's we've been saying that message for decades so they're just ignoring it, it. it's been you know it goes on deaf ears for the most part but in piney point i think the judgment of whether or not uh, this catastrophic event is leading to change will happen six months from now whether it's still an issue or not because what i've seen in the past is that you know this the crisis that has happened at piney point it, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody I mean, this has been decades in the making, and there's been a lot of groups sounding the alarm. Um, so, you know, what I've seen happen in the past is that you have this initial response from the government and from the, te- from the, from the politicians. And then once they start to understand the true gravity of the overall problem, you tend to look elsewhere for issues to focus on. 
So unless you have a catastrophic event like what you have here at Piney Point, you really this has been hidden. Um, it, it was interesting because I've I've talked to a lot of uh, news reporters over the you know the last couple of, of weeks, and the first news reporters didn't even know what phosphogypsum was mm-hmm. or even pronounce it correctly for the most part. And then by you know a week into it. Most everybody had gotten an education as to what this stuff is. And, and then the question is just, why are we doing it? <laughs> absolutely. Everybody's scratching their head saying, no, I can't believe this is actually happening. Well, let's talk a little bit about the influences that create that. Now, when we talk about phosphate mining in Florida, it's it's really completely dominated by one company, correct? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Mosaic. Okay. And now, from a, from a leverage standpoint... Mosaic isn't a really big player in county level politics. Like they don't come anywhere close to like the land developers in terms of how much money they put into financial support of campaigns and so forth. So where do they draw their leverage in always seeming to be able to get their way in permit applications? Uh, well, you have to go back to the early influence of the phosphate industry in the state of Florida. Um, they had early influence on our constitution uh, that made it a viable a natural resource that has to happen in, in the state. Um, you, you have to take a look at local politics, and you have to go back generation a couple, a couple decades ago to see the influence that this industry has had. Uh, they, they still have a lot of influence. I, I certainly wouldn't say that they're a non-player in politics today. I think they're, they're a major player. Um, but uh, a lot of the influence goes back into the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So they have the infrastructure there in the laws to be able to operate the way that they need to, and then I imagine they're a bigger player at the state level than, than they are at the local level. Uh, most definitely. we've okay. uh, My wife and I have done some lobbying in, in Tallahassee, and you go to uh, uh, offices of various politicians and you see mosaic cups, mm-hmm. uh, which is yeah. always kind of, you know, okay. Well, yeah. they do, you know, that's one thing that I've written about before, that it's, it's sort of... Uh, it's curious that a company that does not sell a product directly to the public, so they don't have anything to advertise in terms of retail sales, yet they spend millions of dollars in the Tampa Bay region on marketing. Right. Now, I always, I'm curious, I've always been curious how much they actually spend on marketing and if they could. Uh, I remember at one point it was in the seven-figure budget annually yeah it was somewhere i think between one and two million dollars for the tampa bay region and when you look at that there's a couple things the cynic in me looks and says you know that they had quite a few newspapers that they did quite a bit of advertising uh uh, purchases from and then you look at that and you say well you know that (laughs) that seems like it might be seeking to buy influence because again if you're you know the, the the easy part is well you know, the PR aspect of because all of their advertising is just as green as green can be. And it paints this beautiful picture on how they're solving the world's food problems and reclaiming the land afterwards. And there's a lot of green grass and kids running around and all kinds of stuff like that. So, you know, you can see that, hey, they're they're sort of, you know, uh, you know, trying to create the warm and fuzzies among the community. So maybe when these issues like permitting come up, that that has influence in terms of the public, you know, reaction. But then the other part you look and you say, that's in a declining industry, that's a lot of revenue you're providing. And then maybe when the editorial opinion is created in terms of whether or not these things are such a bad danger, either they get positive affirmation or at the very least, they just get not much attention drawn to it. Uh, 
Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't. And then you with see that. a lot of that. You see a lot of naming rights purchased by them. Um, so they, they do a great deal to you know sort of build that image of it. But again, it seems like all the evidence, and, it, and in particular, it seems like we have you know it's not like you know fracking in some of these more desolate states and so forth is as bad as that is environmentally. It seems like you know, but. In a lot of those states, there's not a lot of economic opportunity and there's not a lot of industry. And then you look at Florida and we seem uniquely positioned in that these major economic forces are diametrically opposed to each other. So when you look at Florida's big industries of tourism, uh, building houses for people that retire from elsewhere, and phosphate, it seems like phosphate aggravates the other two greatly. Well, I, I guess when it comes to advertising, I'd like to see them put the money that they use for advertising and PR into solving their phosphogypsum waste disposal problem. That would be great. Um, we had uh, kind of a battle of billboards for a little bit. Um, I uh, purchased a billboard on I-75, and uh, their slogan, the industry slogan is phosphate feeds the world, and I had phosphate pollutes the world, you know, ah, crossed it right. out. And we, we ran it for like three months. And got some news coverage on it and so on and so forth. Uh, but it was interesting. Right after my contract ran out, they put their billboard up. And they also put up a billboard as close to the, my house as they could. Uh, really? So, uh, so it, it's not one that you can win when it comes to PR. Right. They have some very deep pockets. And uh, you might be able to get the message out there a little bit. But it's, it's definitely a, a difficult battle to try to get into with PR and, and the phosphate industry. Uh, uh, just the, the way to fight it is at uh, is at the local level uh, to make sure that your your uh, ordinances are up to date um, that they're doing what they say they're going to do uh, monitor what what is happening as uh, the process unfolds uh, that that's one thing I think anybody can do is just pay attention locally to what's going on and and what's being proposed for their community and when you talk about that brought up a interesting story that if you, if you don't mind I'd love for you to share. Uh, your group was opposed to a Whole Foods development that was going to destroy some wetlands over in Sarasota County, but right really on the border of Sarasota and Manatee. Uh, and it turned out Whole Foods, as as green as they love to present themselves, uh, had no problem destroying wetlands if it meant another Whole Foods could come up. And they used some interesting tactics in terms of how they sort of uh, – uh, rained money down on, on your organization to prevent, you know, a David and Goliath type fight. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Well, yeah, I guess we learned Whole Foods has a whole lot of money too. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was a David and Goliath fight, no doubt. Um, and ultimately uh, we had to walk away because we ran out of resources to continue. And that was part of the strategy of, uh, I think, what uh, what happens with organizations like ours, that you, get a, uh, you just kind of wear down the organization and make it very costly. Um, but, you know, the uh, Sarasota County Commission clearly violated their comprehensive plan when it came to wetlands protection. And it's really unfortunate that uh, we weren't able to get to court and really challenge it because I, I think we would have won. Uh, standing in the state of Florida can be very difficult when you go after rezones. You have to have someone that's pretty much adjacent to the site uh, that's going to have a financial impact to really have standing. And so we had issues with standing on, on that one and weren't able to proceed like we wanted to. Um, but, um, yeah, it, 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 it was a, a rude awakening that if you wait until you get to a rezone, 
then um, it's probably too late unless you have neighbors uh, that are going to be directly impacted by by the development that's taking place. And I know that's another issue that you guys have been at the forefront of. Can you talk a little bit about, I know a lot of our readers hear the term wetlands all the time. They know it's an environmental issue, but can you talk a little bit about why they're so strategically important to our environment and why it's so destructive when we allow people to destroy them or, or you know, in many cases, quote unquote, mitigate them um, in our environment? Well, wetlands are the low spots, and it might have taken Mother Nature uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of years to make that low spot. And so it's always kind of uh, boggled my, my mind and common sense is that you can move these things around, that you can get rid of a low spot here and try to create it someplace else and do that in a matter of five to ten years and see whether or not it's successful. Um, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you give it a 50-year time frame and you come back and take a look at some of these wetlands that were created in the 1960s, uh, they, they have problems. Uh, the, uh, the, engineering, the engineering that took place back then uh, is not the same as the engineering that takes place now, but it doesn't mean that what's going on now is better. But uh, moving around wetlands, where, where you put a wetland where a wetland wasn't before, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, the same is true for phosphate mining in lakes. Um, Hardy County has a lot of lakes. They never had lakes before phosphate mining. So why does it have lakes now? It just doesn't make sense. That, that water is not supposed to be there in that newly created wetland or in that newly dug lake. It's supposed to be in the groundwater. It's supposed to be in the surface water. It's supposed to be in a stream. Maybe it's supposed to be in the, in the atmosphere. We're, there's no way we can totally monitor the impact of a, of a destroying wetland because there are just so many perimeters that we just don't monitor for. Um, but the state of Florida has been developed where if there's a wetland in the way, you can get rid of it and you can do mitigation and place it someplace else. Um, in Manatee County, you can also uh, negotiate for not even mitigating wetlands, but protecting other things or providing infrastructure improvements. Uh, so things, things have gone the wrong way when it comes to wetland protection in the state of Florida. Um, and we're going to pay a, a, a dear price for it. Uh, when it comes to uh, flood attenuation, when it comes to preservation of lands, when it comes to climate change, uh, all of that's going to catch up to us. It already is. Let's shift back to mosaic and phosphate mining for a moment while we're talking about something similar. And you see a lot of commercials for the reclamation, and you see these beautiful you know, so-called parks and everything that they've built in different places. Uh, that strikes me as misleading. Am I, am I correct? Well, first is let's, let's take care of the 100,000 acres in the state of Florida that have not been reclaimed. Um, let's, let's take care of them first, and then we can talk about whether or not what they do now is reclamation um, that is successful. Now, if you are destroying a hardwood wetland, that's 50 to 100 years in the making to have it reclaimed. Uh, you're not going to do it overnight. So there's a time lag that takes place when you destroy a hardwood wetland. Uh, you just, you, there's no way you can get it back. With, you have to give it a century. So you have lost that habitat for 100 years. And you don't, really account, you don't really account for that loss of habitat. It's just part of the process of losing a hardwood wetland. You can take an isolated wetland and you can destroy it and move it someplace else and make it look like it's isolated. But there's no way you can get all the... Um, functions and values of that wetland uh, replaced because it's not in the same location. So there's, there's definitely a time lag when it comes to reclamation. Um, and also it's like, well, again, 
holding the industry's feet to the fire. Let's take care of the unreclaimed wetlands that were destroyed in the state of Florida. Let's, let's get them back. Um, maybe not in the same location, but at least get them back. And uh, before you move forward with any more destruction, take care of the problems that you've created in the past. How can our listeners and readers uh, find the information with Minnesota 88 website? Yeah, minnesota88.org, O-R-G. And uh, you can sign up. It says join Minnesota 88, and you'll get our, uh, um, our newsletter that I take uh, about once a week, once every two weeks. And uh, thank you for publishing that. Absolutely. It's been a great resource for our readers, and anytime we can share that information, it's excellent. And a lot of people have found us as a result of that, and uh, greatly appreciate that. And they can donate to the organization as well to help you guys in your fights? Yeah, um, I, I, I know I need to set up something on the website to do okay. that. I, I haven't done that yet. So right now we just accept it through mail. And again, okay. you can get that on our website. All right, well, listen, guys, if you have the means, this is an organization where the money's not going to overhead, the money's not going in the wrong places, it's going to fighting the good fight. And as long as I've lived in the area in the last 20 years, I have seen few, if any, environmental organizations that have been so consistent and persistent and always on the right side of the issue. So if you can help them out, please, uh, again, there, there are a few places where your donations would go so far in terms of making a difference right here in your own backyard. Glenn, thanks so much for coming in today. I appreciate it. Whenever it comes to these kind of issues, there's a reason why you're the go-to guy, and I've seen you probably quote it and heard your voice in uh, more news reports over the last couple of weeks than anyone else, but it would be it would be much, much nicer if this wouldn't, like you said, just become an issue when we have a catastrophe. And if, if the community, again, like anything else, if the community gets full-throatedly behind this and demands change, that's probably the only way that we're going to see a difference. Uh, most definitely. And uh, you know, going to the, the ballot box makes a big difference. Yes, too. hold your officials to the fire. Thanks again, Glenn. Guys, join us every week for the Bradenton Times podcast. And don't forget to sign up for the Sunday edition every Sunday at thebradentontimes.com. Fact-based news and analysis without an agenda.